This is the Millennial Millionaire Through Real Estate Podcast. The houses have given us that, that, that um, ability to at least think about it. Um, mm-hmm. And if we wanted to, we could retire and live somewhere cheaply. Um, mm-hmm. Or we could get a job and pay a little bit more than we, we would like to for rent. <laughs> I won't tell you what our rents are in Seattle, but if you see <laughs> You're listening to the Millennial Millionaire Through Real Estate Podcast, where we discuss tangible tips, tricks, and best practices for becoming financially free. The show is designed for people who want to either start real estate investing or for those who want to scale their real estate business. What's going on, everyone? This is Jonathan Farber, your host of the Millennial Millionaire Through Real Estate Podcast. I hope you're all well and healthy. For any first-time listeners, thanks for being here. The goal of this show is to explore ways to become financially free through real estate or to increase passive cash flow through real estate. A little background on myself, I work in corporate America at a software company and my side hustle is real estate. I currently own eight rental units and looking to add more this spring. I have house hacked, bird, flipped, and done short-term rentals to name a few strategies. My current focus is 20 to 30 unit apartment buildings in Ohio and Kentucky. I love to network and learn. So if you'd like to connect further, feel free to find me on LinkedIn, Facebook, or BiggerPockets. What's going on, guys? Got a really interesting episode today with Michelle and Bruce Fisher. They are based in Seattle, Washington. They have 12 units to this point, and they are financially free. It's very interesting, actually, what type of unit they focused on in this case being low income housing, which there's a lot of popular debate on, controversy of the good, the bad, the gray area of should we be doing this? And they talk about their approach and start with it, how they've been successful and their current view, especially with coronavirus, where I've seen a lot more people come back to favoring low income housing or even government provided housing where the money is being paid by the government. You don't have to worry about a tenant having a job or not. So it's really interesting, but their story is great. They have a great perspective Been investing together since pretty much the 08 recession and started building their business that way. And it's funny because now they're building their business again. They're adding a couple of rentals as they're seeing this as the next opportunity. And it's funny because I hear a lot of people say they wish they knew now what they, they, or they wish they had what they knew now in 2008 so they could be investing then. But uh, a lot of people don't do that anyway, if they, feel scared or there's, there's turbulent times and they don't invest. But these two, Michelle and Bruce, are a perfect example of people that are investing and kind of taking practice what they preach of investing in a dip as it could be an opportunity. So really interesting, good stuff. We go through a lot of topics. And the main takeaway or learning that I had from this episode, which I don't think we've talked about in almost 80 or 90 episodes, whatever number this comes out as, is private loans with family members on rental properties. We've had a lot of people come on the show and talk about how to structure private money loans for flips or even maybe different types of rehabs, burrs. But what they have come up with for sourcing money to buy properties is for long-term rental loans with family and friends. And it's just a really cool strategy. We dug into all the mechanics of it, of how do you do it? What term? What do you say to these people? Um, what you can use the money for? And basically, you can listen to this episode and immediately walk away and go to your family or friends that may have expressed interest and your holdup was you didn't know how to structure the, the money with them. This can give you that framework. So I'm probably going to take exactly what they said and use it 
with a couple of people that have reached out offering funding on some deals. And I hadn't really thought of it because in most cases, people say you can't do it on rentals, but they've clearly shown that you can. So that was my main takeaway. I think it'll help you guys a lot too. Today's tangible tip, kind of a funny one as well, but it has to do with this pen here. If you're watching on video or you're in the Facebook group, I'm holding up a Bic multicolored pen. My dad, Bruce, love you. If you're the first, if you're listening to this, you're the first one that, that got me started with these pens. Great pen. It's got four colors, red, uh, green, black, blue. For those that have seen any of the stuff I posted in the Facebook group, I love whiteboards and I love different colors, uh, visual person, visual learner. And I like this for a lot of reasons because I don't really take many notes by hand. I usually type, but if I do, I love this so you can categorize by color or make things seem a little more uh, visually appealing when you're writing them on the page. And I love it because I use this as my highlighter, multicolor highlighter. Usually I'll highlight in red and I'll take notes in blue in the book, in the margins. And that's kind of my strategy for, for looking at notes and looking at books and then copying those somewhere else. So I use it as a highlighter, note taker, but I just love this pen. I think it's actually a great little hack um, for like two bucks that you can become more productive. So that's today's tangible tip, multicolored pen. Without any further ado, uh, really, really interesting episode today. I learned a lot with Michelle and Bruce Fisher. All right, Bruce and Michelle, welcome to the podcast. Thank you guys so much for being here. What is going on uh, out on the West Coast? How are you guys? Hi, Hi. thanks for having us. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, and and like I said, before we kind of kicked off, I appreciate you guys. It's 10 o'clock here in the morning. So you guys are getting this knocked out nice and early to start your day, getting the podcast in and uh, getting on with it. But um, I have to ask, just as we also talked about a little before we hit record, that uh, smoke and uh, a lot of the forest fires out there have been kind of a uh, top of mind topic for you guys and coronavirus is in addition to that. So um, before we get into anything, background, current investing strategies, how are things, I guess, from a day-to-day -day standpoint of life with um, some of the fires you guys have been dealing with and life with the coronavirus, has it affected you in business or your day-to-day -day kind of dealings? So we live in downtown Seattle and right now the smoke is back for a second time, but the air quality at least is still pretty good. So we're able to get outside. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we were stuck inside. We, the air quality was too poor to go outside and that, that felt even worse than coronavirus because we couldn't even go for a walk or any of that. So that's been an impact. Um, and coronavirus, so you know, in Seattle, things shut down pretty much, but most of our rental properties are out more in the suburbs and the other areas. So we haven't had as many tenants impacted by not being able to work and those type of issues. We did have one tenant who just decided because of the um, eviction moratorium that he was just going to stop paying rent. Um, so we went six months with no rent and... Mm the state moratorium is, is expiring soon. So our property manager was able to convince him to leave. So at least now we can get on. Got it. Okay. I had something similar, which I'm sure we'll, we'll dig into later in the show. When we talk about current dealings. Um, you mind just bringing us back from a high level of how you guys got started in real estate, uh, maybe your first deal, and then bring us from a high level up to speed on where the business has grown into today. Sure. Yeah. Bruce has always been interested in affordable housing. He's been involved with starting Habitat for Humanity chapters and got involved as a housing commissioner. So it's always been on his radar to um, be interested in housing and especially the affordable housing. Um, I wasn't nearly as interested. He always wanted to get a rental and 
it wasn't something that that really appealed to me. But then when we hit the Great Depression and the prices were so low, it was a lot more compelling and easier to jump in. So um, we had both kind of been involved with a low income neighborhood in the city we were living with at the time. It was a 40 block radius that they were trying to kind of revitalize. And so we had been attending their neighborhood meetings and Bruce had a lot of involvement with that. So. We bought one property in that um, in that area. It was a duplex, and we kind of did a light rehab on it. And then I just fell in love with it, and suddenly I wanted to like buy the whole neighborhood. So you know, we we got going as much as we could until we kind of ran out of funds. And then mm -hmm. it was time to send the kids to college, and that was pretty expensive. So we kind of laid low for a while, and then this January we jumped in and bought two more duplexes. Um, so we have 12 units right now, all in that same low income area, and we um, really cater to the low income and it's not section eight because Bruce was a housing commissioner so it was a conflict of interest for him to do section eight. So it's really the level under that kind of people coming right out of homelessness or near homelessness. Mm -hmm. Okay. Can and, we and correct she, she meant great recession not great depression we're not that old. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, wasn't going to say anything, but that's hilarious. Yeah, I'm not quite that old. <laughs> I knew, but for people on video, maybe they weren't sure. So thanks for clearing that up. Um, I want to go back to the first maybe deal or handful of deals, as a lot of people listening might be in that, that space. And I think a lot of people listening might also be in expensive markets, coastal markets, unlike uh, the, the people that come on the show a lot of times from... Uh, lower price point markets in the middle of the country who are saying they can pick up these duplexes and triplexes for 100,000 or 120,000, which me originally being from New York, that's just not a thing, uh, at least in the main parts of town or the main parts of the city. So could you just bring us back to, I guess, the first deal, kind of your mindset, um, and then some of the like mechanics of it, of how you found it, how you financed it, who was your team, and then just like how it went? So we're in Seattle, so we know high-priced uh, real estate. It's, it's, <laughs> right. This is one of the highest, highest-priced uh, real estate places around. So, um, but we were in Longview, is where we um, bought our stuff, which is much cheaper. Um, and um, basically, we had been saving because Michelle had not wanted to invest in in risky stuff like this or in much. We had had um, built up a little cash. So we had the cash to put down for 30%. It was it basically, it was about saving money for a decade, two decades, um, actually a decade, I guess. We're not that old. Um, <laughs> and then we had enough money to go and find something that was in our price range. And we mm -hmm. just did a lot of, it was, we did our own research. Um, the Redfin, Zillow, those kind of websites, um, Craigslist. Actually, our first one we found, we found on Craigslist so somebody was trying, it, it fell through, but it was the, um, the first taste we had of mm. doing. And um, yes, basically we went to the, our credit union. We had a relationship with our credit union. We were able to go and get a loan there, found a realtor that we could work with, um, a new realtor, which, so he was willing to put up with us, um, looking for cheaper stuff, you know, mm -hmm. Realtors, they, they, the realtors that have been around for a while, they want to go after the bigger houses that cost a lot more money because um, there's more money for them. But mm -hmm. when you're new, you're willing to, to do the harder, harder work. So we found somebody that was willing to do the work for us. And um, after enough time looking around, we found uh, the first place that would work for us. 
and made an offer and it worked. A lot of it was timing. I mean, that was part of why I, I could convince her was the timing of the Great Recession came, prices sunk, and we were able to find something. Mm -hmm. So it's really interesting you say finding a realtor who's a little bit more on the upswing or the beginning of their career, because for a lot of people that teach or talk about finding deals, the broker, the realtor is the, the heart of that team who can help you source your lenders, your lawyers, your handy people, anyone you need. But a lot of times I do hear that people have trouble getting traction with brokers or realtors, especially now with such a hot market that they're really busy. So is that a way that you recommend uh, people get connected with maybe a broker that's someone that might have a little more time, who's maybe a newer broker who can give them their time and energy. And then, you know, hopefully that turns out to be a good person to work with, but do you recommend a strategy like that to build your team? I do. I mean, it's, it's I, I, like kind of said, it's a little risky because they're new, so they may not, they may fail, but mm -hmm. I think if you do your research and are willing to drop them, find someone else if you need to, um, they can work out. And it worked out well for us that we found somebody that was a hustler and um, he was So it worked out great for us, worked out great for him. Now he's one of the uh, top realtors in the area. Wow, okay. Yeah. You guys did a good job picking yeah. well, I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, not, not, But I mean, we, we helped him with a start. No, we did you know, eight, eight in like three years. Wow. I think he was pretty happy with that. Got it. One okay. thing you have to be careful of is independently verifying your market rents because we would always ask him, but oh. we wouldn't rely on that information. We were really watching Craigslist closely and really paying attention to what rents were in that area so we could do our own unbiased because yes. you know they usually round up quite a bit mm -hmm. on market rentals. <laughs> yeah. Everyone's everyone's optimistic in <laughs> what it's, what it's uh, their their way to make money. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You have to do your own research. You can't trust them to know. Um, no, this is your business, not theirs. Their business yep. is selling houses, not yep. renting. Can we actually talk about that for a sec? I had one other question, but before we go to it, that's definitely one that I think is important for people. I hear that a lot as their reason to not get started, that they don't know how much something is going to be able to rent for if they buy it. And there's a lot of information out there. Again, this is one of those things there's so much information on and there's a lot of different theories. So it's, I think, hard for people to put together. Maybe it's an excuse. Maybe there isn't a proven formula. But curious for you guys, how do you guys go about feeling good or knowing that a property you buy is going to rent for a good enough monthly amount to make your numbers work? Well, two ways. Uh, the first one is to, we found a neighborhood. We focused on a certain neighborhood so we can narrow down what we're looking at. Um, it's a lot easier to look at 600 houses and the rentals and prices than you know, 600,000 houses. Um, mm -hmm. So if you narrow it down to a certain neighborhood, you can really um, figure it out. And then the other way we did it was, it became Michelle's hobby. Uh, basically, <laughs> that was her hobby was every once a week, she would get all the ad advertised rentals and put them in a spreadsheet and just track them that way. Mm -hmm. So we ended up with the same number, but it was, was there hobby? I would do well, it. Well, I felt a lot more comfortable yeah. with it because you know I had a spreadsheet with a ton of different data, both nearby houses, or maybe if we were looking at a house, we could tell the last three times it rented, what it rented for, and you know, just having all that data was really helpful. And just for again, making it as as I guess actionable as possible for someone listening, was that just a spreadsheet you'd pull 
rental information from whatever, Trulia, Zillow, Hotpads, and then right. just have it broken out, address, bed, bath, rent price, stays on market, or, or anything specific you'd recommend? Whether water garbage is included, utilities, whether it had any special upgrades. You know, in our neighborhood, they don't, don't typically have dishwashers. Um, they may not have washer dryers, you know, just some of those amenities so that you can kind of compare. Uh, mm -hmm. whether it had a garage or not, you know, just you want to take those things into account. Yeah, I'm actually really glad you said that because that's one I just had a question pop up and it was, do I need to apply? Uh, do I need to provide appliances in the property? And that just depends. Some areas you do, some areas you don't. In some areas, people can't imagine not having a washer and dryer, but you go to New York City, there's, I, I can't think of any apartments that have a washer and dryer, but you go to Raleigh, North Carolina, you couldn't even consider marketing a place that didn't have a washer and dryer already provided. So it's just very different, I guess, set, or at least the hookups. Then, and then depending on like the neighborhood, it might be even that much different. Um, right. and it goes back to knowing your neighborhood. If you know yep. the neighborhood you're buying stuff, then you know what is, what is normal. Yeah. And I love your guys' approach that you did digging on your own. You're scrubbing the sites, you're pulling data, you're doing research, and then you have a broker who's competent and can help, Give you a little hand holding at the beginning as he grows his business and give you some attention and then he could also help you get smarter on the area so like for anyone listening that's a very tactical like actionable approach of a one two kind of step of you have a person helping you and then you have some digging on your own that anyone here can do just pull information out of a spreadsheet put it on make it a hobby analyze it weekly and then right there you're a lot smarter in our neighborhood and you know okay is this an area that i'm going to consider so uh, a couple of things just on market for you guys because Another thing we hear a lot of times is for people that are in quote unquote expensive markets, they have to go out of state or they have to become long distance investors. So for you guys, did you consider doing that at all at the beginning or your first deal? Or was it you found you felt you were able to find deals at a price point that worked for you guys locally? So in the beginning, we weren't interested in that because we really wanted to put the sweat equity in and, and really control it. Um, since we moved away from that market, we have had to turn it over to property managers. But more recently, we have been interested in doing low income investing out of state. And the issue is finding a property manager who will take on that um, population and does a good job at it. So that's been our limiting factor so far. Got it. So I'd love to just that said, keep keep going down the track of your guys entry and how you got started. Um, and you mentioned in even Seattle finding areas that were lower income, um, but not section eight. So I'd love to just dig into, I guess, the difference or how you guys viewed that, because I think there's a lot of uh, misinformation out there on that type of category in the market. I think uh, people may have had one bad experience and think it's horrible, may have had one good experience and think it's amazing. So can you just give the listeners kind of an idea of what lower income housing, how you guys define it and what you think the pros and cons are of investing in that are? Yeah, I mean, for us, it that makes you say we it wasn't Section 8, but now it could be. I mean, it was just a matter of we couldn't accept Section 8, but the houses are available to Section but 8. But most people so, who have vouchers are looking for something nicer than the properties that we have. Can you just define Section 8 for those who don't know? So Section 8 is the voucher program, the housing voucher program. It's now called housing choice voucher, but a lot of people still call it Section 8, and it is a subsidy that um, HUD gives out to individuals. They'll get a voucher, and then 
the local housing authority will pay the landlord part of the um, rent uh, according to how much the, the uh, renter earns. So I couldn't do it because it was a conflict of interest because I was a commissioner for the housing authority. Mm -hmm. So we didn't actually do it, but um, low income housing, it's something that's gonna probably come up. There's a good chance that somebody will have a, a section eight voucher. And nowadays, a lot of states, there's a, the source of income laws where you have to accept section eight, whether you want to or not. What, so is, do you have any advice for someone that's a beginner considering section eight or low income housing compared to the quote unquote typical approaches? Um, is it something you recommend, don't recommend anything like that? Actually, yeah, I mean, it's got its pros and cons. I mean, the pro is you're gonna get money. Uh, you know, the housing authority is not going to lose their job, not gonna go bankrupt. You're going to be getting that, that part of the money every month. The downside is um, two things. The um, person could lose their subsidy and then you're kind of hosed um, if they screw up. But also once a year you have an inspection where they, so that takes a little bit of time. Plus they find some pretty minor things that can be a pain in the butt to fix. So yeah, the inspections are a pain, not a huge deal. I, they have a limit of how much they'll charge. You know, it, they're not unreasonable, um, but it could be, you know, if, if the light switch cover is off because the resident took it off, you got to pay someone to put it back on or do it yourself. Mm -hmm. so, that kind of stuff. so that's the kind of the big negative is the once a year inspection. It has a bad, a bad rep because there are these stories of people leaving, you know, uh, houses in bad condition after they leave because they were, they're, they're low income. I mean, that's really, really what you get when you, when you get a low income person. Yeah, the, mm -hmm. but really it could happen with any, I've done higher income rentals. Um, I'm a property manager now for other people. So I, uh, we moved to Seattle and I became a property manager for other people. <laughs> and um, you see that with hiring, hiring too. So you sure. get the whole stories of the low income, but it's really all people are going to do it got it so what happened i guess after that first deal you guys had saved up for a little while you said 10 years or so or whatever savings you guys had been putting together found this broker found the property type and neighborhood through research you get the first deal seems like it went pretty well enough it went well enough that uh you weren't turned off to not do a second and a third deal so can you just walk us through the progression of what happened after that first deal, how you guys started going about adding more units and what your approach was? Yeah, one thing we didn't really, um, still kind of hinted at it, but we bought places that were in pretty bad condition. Um, we bought a few foreclosures, places that had just been destroyed, mm. uh, places that the landlord just hadn't taken care of. So that we, we got them really cheap because they were a mess. They were not uh, lucky places at all. Um, so I spent a lot of time fixing them up. So what basically what we would do is buy one. It's kind of like flipping, except for we didn't flip them. We'd buy one, I'd fix them up. And then um, we get someone in there and then we buy another one, fix it up, rinse and repeat. Got it. And yeah, for that's these- how you get more houses because it's a lot cheaper that way. Right. But just on that note, I agree with that hundred percent. On that note though, most of those from my experience can't be finance with traditional banks. So we'd love to hear how you guys are going about the financing for those. And uh, if the repair costs were also kind of factored into that. Yeah, um, most of them were not quite that bad. 
that they could okay. finance. Yeah, they're 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 livable, so we could finance them, but they needed a lot of cosmetic cosmetic work. Um, so yeah, we were able to all but one we were able to finance. Um, one we just got it was in such bad condition we were able to get it cheap enough that we could use some of the proceeds from other places to get it. Got it. And eighteen thousand dollars, I think, for a duplex. <laughs> Wow, eighteen thousand dollars And and did you say where you were finding these deals, these distressed properties? Most, uh, most of them were on the MLS. Yeah, they're all. I mean, we're looking on Craigslist, but most of them we found on MLS and Zillow. Huh. Okay. Is and then you said you were doing repairs on them. So next question, I, I feel like I have to ask is: Are you handy? Were you doing this stuff yourself, or were you were you outsourcing? This? I'm 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 hard. Hard. Uh, no, I I'm had, doing repairs no, no. like this is just not possible. I had nothing. I knew almost nothing about. Uh, I mean, I, I've been a homeowner for you no know, a decade, and um, so I do basic stuff. But no, I was not handy at all. I, I came from the tech industry, um, so. We found a handyman. Again, it comes back to finding the right people. Found a handyman, hired him to take care of the stuff. I worked with him. As as we got along, I learned stuff from him. I was able to do more and more. Mm -hmm. uh, YouTube videos, they're great. You learn how to do things. I can put in the sweat to paint. I mean, painting, you can do. Even without <laughs> skills, you can do. Uh, <laughs> By the fifth, sixth house, I was starting to have some skills, so it went a lot better. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's, it's, it's about, find, again, it's about finding the right people, finding people at Home Depot that can explain things to you, getting a handyman, talking, talking to the handyman, talking to plumbers, talking to electricians, and they're willing to share their, their knowledge usually. If they're not willing to share your knowledge, then you find someone else. Mm -hmm. Any tips for someone looking to find handy people or contractors? If, let's say, they're looking at a deal right now in the MLS, that's that's looks pretty bad and they've never done construction or they know that it would heavily depend on the right team member. How can they go about finding that person? I wish I knew. Uh, that's, <laughs> <laughs> it comes back to putting in the work to find somebody, mm -hmm. having a network, finding somebody, trying different people. Um, you know, we tried a few handymen, a few realtors before we found the right person. Um, you do have to look around. Okay, got it. And no, there's no magic uh, button to push. No Google search to just a uh, good handyman. It doesn't doesn't work so well. Yeah, not for long at least. They either disappear or get gobbled up and go full time with someone else. So, or they get or they get so busy. You know, it's like uh, we just read uh, Emith for our book club, and it really actually made me understand contractors and handy people better. That they're just handy people. They they they're not bad people. They're just not business operators. They don't know how to manage a calendar, manage a payroll or track projects. They're, they're handy people. Then a lot of times they just think that the way to grow their business is to build it out and make it bigger when they only like the part of being handy. They didn't like the part of managing customers and organizing things. It just wasn't it. So it's just a really interesting part of the business. Um, definitely made me look at it differently. Our What's handyman that? bringing in new people. He was always trying to get an employee. And every time I hired him for a new house, he had a different employee. Oh, he's bringing on new people. Yeah, he couldn't do that part. Yeah, right, right, right. It's it's like management, different job than the actual technician role. So it's just really interesting to see. So for you guys, um, it seems like were you were you adding were you trying to add more than one property a year, a handful of properties a year? I guess what was your strategy in doing this? Just anytime you saw something that popped up and you guys had the capital saved, you're using your own money. 
and you would take the property down and then get the repairs done and try to do this almost like a like quick burr strategy? It, it worked out for us. I mean, we were constantly doing the research, constantly trying to find a place. And it just happened to work out that as I was finishing one place and getting it rented out, we would find another place. Uh, there were Sometimes there were overlaps, sometimes there was a little bit of a gap, but for the most part, it was just constant research. Mm -hmm. uh, and at least in the beginning, the money kept coming. We, we found a family member that it would be a win-win for us to loan some money from them. We were able to get a HELOC on one of our rentals, which is pretty unusual, but that opened up some more cash for us. So we finally yeah. hit the wall where it was difficult that it's like we'd love to buy more, but there wasn't any readily available money. But in the beginning, we seemed to be able to rolling. Would you guys mind discussing the strategy used to create a win-win scenario with that family member? Because that's also a very common response I hear from people who, again, maybe it's an excuse to not get started, but they say they can't get into the game because after their first deal, which they've never even done before, they're going to run out of money. So I usually say, why don't you cross that bridge when you get there? But uh, then there are some people that have done it and then still say, I'm out of money. What do I do? And they have maybe family members that could invest with them, but you don't hear that often uh, about the strategies to take on private money from family members with rentals. You hear it a lot with flips. I don't hear it nearly as much with rentals. So I'm curious how you guys structured it um, when you were doing it with that family member. So if you think of someone that like has been saving money all their life for retirement, and then they get to that retirement age and retire, and they haven't gotten out of the mode of saving money to start spending money. So that's kind of, you want to target those people who are just right at retirement because they have to start taking money out or have penalties, but they don't really need the money yet. So, you know, it's like approach them and, and offer, you know, offer them a interest rate that's that's favorable for them and us and mm -hmm. um and you know they're happy to since they don't need that money right up front they're happy to have the payments over time so that's why we were able to set it up more like a longer term mortgage so mm -hmm. it's, it's a higher interest rate than you're getting from a bank mm -hmm. they, with the, i mean they had their money in the savings account or even a cd we're giving them more interest than a bank would so it works out. It's kind of win-win. So could we just walk through a, a maybe like a actual scenario of let's say I'm here today and I find a rental property that I think could work out. I just don't have any money, but I have some uncles and aunts that do have money. Um, from, from like the actual, I guess, details of it, what would you recommend for someone listening that they can set it up? Any rules of thumb, interest rate, length of term, um, paperwork stuff needed. They're, they're hearing this and saying, okay, that sounds good. I just don't know how to do that. And I don't know what fair terms would be for either side. So what terms would you recommend for today's environment that they can go to that aunt or uncle with to do a, a private loan? Well, we went with what, what our bank would give us if, you know, if, if, if we were able to do that. Um, and then we offer that amount. I mean, that's, I mean, it's a good amount for the bank. It's a great amount of uh, interest rate for the lender mm -hmm. um, because they're not a bank. So they can't mm -hmm. get a loan that way. So it works out for them. We've actually done it for our kids now on um, the same kind of thing. And yep. it, it works out. I mean, we have some cash that was sitting in a savings account. That's not earning us any money. Mm -hmm. So we could, uh, we, they got their loan and then we, we found out what their interest rate is. 
offered them uh, some cash at the same rate and they're just paying us back. Um, we did it with long-term, like 27 years is what we did mm -hmm. um, the loan with, um, but it could be shorter. Uh, after, you know, after five, six years, you can read, you know, um, you know, Remortgage. Like refinance? Refinance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can refinance your stuff and then pay them off if they need the cash. Uh, you could pay more. You know, as as the property goes on, as time goes on, rents go up, your mortgage doesn't go up. So you can mm -hmm. afford more later on if they need if they do end up needing the cash. So it. it's 27 years just for the amortization, really. Mm -hmm. But if if they need the money, you can pay it off too. Right. You could do a shorter term or something like that. And just to make sure like it, it, for the percent or the, the interest rate, it could just be whatever like a bank is offering today, because that is fair. Maybe. And then to make it a little juicier, compelling for them, you can offer maybe a couple percent more or whatever. You can work it out. But that could be kind of like your starting point. But keeping in mind that I was really naive when we first started and the interest rate you're going to pay on a rental is higher than an interest rate when you're buying your own home that you're going to live in. And that was, you know, we saw deals on Craigslist and it's like, that's a high interest rate. And then later mm. we realized, oh, that's not so bad for rentals. You know, it's yeah. so being aware of that difference. That was how our first our first one uh, on Craigslist that we tried uh, failed is. We did. We hadn't done the research. We didn't know what a good interest rate was. We're trying to negotiate a lower one. Yeah, we looked at them. Go, what do you think? It seven percent. We could get way better than that on our mortgage. <laughs> totally, and that—that's why I'm asking. Just because it's the same thing that someone out there listening might be thinking and not knowing that the interest rate is lower on your primary home than it is on an investment property, and they yeah. could be going out and running into a lot of walls because they're seeing an interest rate. When they go on, let's say bankrate.com and they don't check that box that it's not a primary residence. Right. Right. Or go in and talk to somebody at a bank. I mean, again, it's back to doing the research. Yep. Talk to somebody at a bank, see what you what you what you could do. Um, if you could do that. And if you can uh, if you can not get a bank loan and get a personal loan first, or even if you can afford a bank loan, then if you can get a personal loan first instead, then you get the bank loan later. Mm-hmm. Yep. Another key learning was the timing too, because when, so if you're going to do that, you're basically making a cash offer on a property and you need to have proof of cash in your mm. account to make that offer. So, you know, the timing is like, oh, we have to do that now. We thought we had a little bit of time. Right. So, and that depends on the houses you're buying. I mean, if you're, if you are only doing the down payment, you wouldn't need that. She's talking about we paid cash for some because they were back to that one that was so low that we couldn't get a loan on. Right. We were, we were, yeah, we were kind of rushing around to get cash in our bank because they wanted to see the cash. Like, what do you mean you don't just believe we have the cash? <laughs> yeah, at some point, the IOUs kind of go away. Yeah. But just on that note, you were, I'm glad you said that. You just reminded me of something. Again, making it as tangible as possible for people that are thinking about doing this was um, like just, and I'll, I'll lay the table for those just like as simply as I think about it. Like there are, um, there are secured and unsecured loans in real estate or in general. And typically a secured loan means it's backed by something hard, like an asset. So it's like, if we were gonna do a loan right here, uh, Michelle, if you gave me a hundred thousand dollars, but it was going towards a spe specific property, that's a secured loan that then you could take back the asset if I stop paying you. An unsecured loan, meaning I'm just gonna take that money, I'll pay back your interest rate, we'll have a contract, but it's not secured by a property. If I default, 
it would be probably a little trickier as far as tracking me down and getting the payment and making me pay it out instead of seizing on a property. So for the way that you guys had set yours up, um, I've seen it done both ways. Depends on, I guess, the relationship with the person, secured or unsecured. So for the, the way you guys set it up, was it secured? I mean, obviously for us as investors, I think unsecured would be better uh, if we know we're going to pay the person back because then we could use the money for anything. But were your, your loans backed by a specific property or was it more or less just like debt that you could use for any property that popped up? Yeah, they were unsecured. And, you know, we went through the paperwork and um, you know, did a formal agreement with the family member, but they were close enough, that, you know, it's like, we're going to pay them back because we would feel horrible if we didn't. But, you know, and they, and they were comfortable with that. If it was a friend rather than a family, we probably would go the other route. Sure, totally. Again, and there's pros and cons of both, but it's just I, like, if you're a good person, you know, you're going to pay that person back and it's a family, like, you know, only, you know, and then whatever risk you're willing to burden someone in your family with, I mean, if you're doing the right thing, it shouldn't be an issue at all. If you're not, or something pops up, you know, but then you hear the, the cases of people that it was an unsecured line, there was nothing backing it, but they knew no matter what, they were going to pay that person back. Even if the property that that money went towards was a total disaster, they've made that person whole. And that's just how you keep relationships, you know, and can go back to build for more money later on. And it wasn't so much that we would pay it back as much as, I mean, there was, it was more trusted us to use the house to pay them back. You know, it, so it wasn't like we would just go, oh, we lost it, we, we can't afford you, we'll just keep the house. So it was secured by our good name. Um, right. So there was, there was the informal secured of the, of the house backing it up. Yeah, so totally. That there makes is that. It's not just, oh, whatever we, it's not based on our W-2, I guess. Yeah. It's, it's based on that we had a house too. I mean, we weren't just blowing it on a jet ski or something. <laughs> we were buying something that we could sell later to pay them back. New or, set of golf clubs. Yeah, yeah right. Risk. Yeah. And, and just, I guess, to button this up, the last thing I just want to ask you about is the legal part of it. Um, who do you recommend, I guess, getting engaged? What type of paperwork do you need? Is it a promissory note? Is this just a, a lawyer that you guys knew? Uh, again, just trying to check every box here for someone that's listening and trying to figure out how do I do this? If it sounds good and, you know, I, I found a property, I just don't have the money. We didn't really go the formal route. We, we do have a relationship with a lawyer for evictions and stuff, but we don't mm -hmm. tend to use them for the paperwork. That's another area that we kind of do our own research on and, and come up with our own legal documents. So, are you asking about the loan though? He's asking about the loan. Right. But yeah, it was but like you kind of answered it that it wasn't super, it was just, you know, you had something and it wasn't like you had all this paperwork and stuff, it sounds like, but you had something and it was good enough for this family member. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, really interesting. I, I like never know where some of these are going to go, but that's a route that I'm glad we did because that is something I hear so often. I never really hear people talk about how to structure it. So I just love kind of peeling the layers back and going through how you did it, how you're successful with it for the listener out there that that is their roadblock. You know, that might help 50 people right there who are listening to this that feel like money is their holdup and they know people that have money. They just, they let the, the idea of not knowing how to structure it be the problem. And I haven't found a lot of good information on this exact thing. So I'm, I'm glad we went there. Um, before we kind of get you guys out of here and do the, the last couple of questions, What's got you guys excited right now as far as investing or things that are top of mind? I know you said you just picked up two new properties after maybe it's been a while. Um, any more kind of on the on the horizon or is it more management mode for you guys? Are you guys 
financially free with your feet kicked up already and just hanging out or what's what's top of mind? COVID's made it a lot less exciting right now. We're in <laughs> Seattle where it's gonna be a eviction moratorium until next fall probably. So uh, it's it's not not looking so good um, here at least. Um, mm -hmm. I always thought I wanted to buy like a small multi here in Seattle and live in one of the units and rent out the rest, but it just feels like Seattle is such an unfavorable, you know, it's so tenant friendly that that's probably not the path we're going to be able to take. So we'll probably just keep saving our money and when we get enough, um, continue buying maybe in that same area that we're in now because we know it. Mm -hmm have the relationship set up, but we're open to out of state too, if we could figure out some property managers. Yeah, absolutely. All right. That makes total sense. I don't know if I even asked, um, Bruce, I know you said you're doing full-time property management. Michelle, are you, do you still have a W-2 or are you full-time real estate now or? Yeah, no, I have a W-2. I, I work in finance for a timber company. Oh, okay. Got it. All right. We're kind of enjoying the lifestyle right now. We're living, no, we're living in downtown at the gorgeous view of the city and stuff. So oh, we awesome. could retire. <laughs> we're at the point where we could retire, uh -huh. but like the finer things right now, we're kind of enjoying this. So we have good jobs. So yeah, absolutely. We're, we're, we're actually we've recently been talking about retirement, um, not for a little while, but um, the houses have given us that, that, that um, ability to at least think about it. Um, mm -hmm. And if we wanted to, we could retire and live somewhere cheaply. Um, mm -hmm. or we could get a job and pay a little bit more than we, we would like to for rent. <laughs> I won't tell you what our rents are in Seattle, but if you see <laughs> I can imagine, like I said, from New York, but yeah, it's uh, the thing with retirement, it's like, well, when are we gonna be able to travel again? So that's typically the thing people wanna do when they retire. But at this point it's, it's hard to say. So, you know, why change? It's not like life is all that different. I'm not retired, but you know what I mean? So, um, guys, I just want to say thank you both so much for coming on. Um, this has been a really unique conversation just in the sense of we covered some things that in maybe 90 episodes we hadn't really talked about and, you know, you never know what we're going to find. So I just want to personally say thank you both for coming on, uh, before we hop, um, I guess two last questions. One, what's the best way for people to connect with you guys or check out your story? Uh, I'll pause there if you guys want to answer. So I'm um, relatively active on Bigger Pockets, and that's really the best way. I do have a LinkedIn as well, but I generally use that for my other career. So I would Bigger Pockets would be great. Okay, awesome. And then just the last uh, question or comment before we wrap. Any specific calls to action or? Uh, parting words or advice for the beginner investor listening to this and trying to figure out how to get started? I mean, I think I've said it multiple times, uh, do research. Um, you just got to, the more research you can do on your own, you can learn all this stuff. Um, Michelle knew nothing about real estate when we started. I knew nothing about being a handyman when we started and we learned it. Um, mm -hmm. you, can, you can learn the stuff. Mm -hmm. And what you can't learn, you can hire someone for. Yep. Okay, perfect. Well, also, guys, also uh, uh, there are local chapters of landlord um, associations. associations and right. such. Get involved in those. Good Reach source of paperwork and legal help too. Yeah. Right. That's a great point. Documents and leases and all that. That's really good. So, all right, guys, uh, thank you again so much for coming on. It's been fun. Uh, hope the smoke clears. You guys can get out and uh, start traveling again. But thank you again for, for coming on and best of luck in 2020 and beyond. Thank right. you. Thank you. All right, guys.
Hey, you millennial millionaire, do you want more? Then head to the Millennial Millionaires Through Real Estate Facebook group, where there are tons of step-by-step walkthroughs, tools, templates, and free networking to help you achieve financial freedom through real estate. And if you want Jonathan to help you personally reach your goals, then feel free to set up a one-on-one call in the link below or message him on any social media platform and apply to, well, work with Jonathan.